Blog Talk Radio. Thanks for seeing Tribute Call Radio. And let's see. Today we're going to do the lesson on Sunday is, why Sunday is the Lord's Day. And see if it's ready. And also remind you that we're on Truth Be Told Radio uh, as the uh, our website is truthbetoldradio.com, truthbetoldradio.com. And on Twitter, we're Truth Be Told Radio, but it's Truth, the letter B, Told Radio. It doesn't have P-E. And let's see. Also on Facebook, we are as Truth Be Told Radio. Just check us out on there. And let's see what else. If you'd like to support us, uh, we're on Patreon. As Truth Be Told Radio, Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N, Patreon. So that's their website, patreon.com is the website, and you can check us out there if you like the support show. Thanks for listening. Let's see the... The thing is being weird. Let's see. Um, the studio for my show won't go down. So what I'm going to do is play a song since I can't play the actual lesson yet. Here we go with Fruit of the Spirit here on Tributorium. Ready? Okay! Don't go. 
Hurt by Joe Fish. And now they're playing lesson. It is uh, John McCarter with Why Sunday is the Lord's Day here on Chupitori. The following sermon is by John MacArthur, pastor, author, and the Bible teacher with Grace to You. If you've never contacted Grace to You, we want to send you a free booklet by John called Found God's Peace. It's all about helping you defeat anxiety and know true and lasting contentment. Request your free booklet by writing to peace at gty.org. That's P-E-A-C-E at gty.org. Offer good in North America and Europe through June of 2017. And now, unleashing God's truth, one verse at a time, here's grace to you Bible teacher John MacArthur. Good to be back to open the Word of God. When I'm not here, I, uh, I miss being in the church profoundly, and uh, I try my best to uh, find some experience that will substitute for Grace Church. Um, when I was confined at home and I couldn't really go anywhere, which has pretty much been the way it uh, has worked out since surgery, I, I was sort of left to uh, either have a member of my family set up a computer so that I could get the streaming audio from Grace, which I absolutely loved and didn't happen often enough for me. Um, but on those other occasions, I found myself trying to find something on television that, that would uh, fill in. And um, that was a very difficult challenge. I, um, I want you to know that the Scripture, in my mind, is profound. It is it's just profound. It is um, unsearchably rich. It is deep. Um, as to excel all ideas, all philosophies, all opinions, all insights by all human beings put together. And yet I found it almost impossible to find anybody who would just mine the depths of Scripture. Opinions, plenty of them. Insights, plenty of them. But it was almost um, impossible to find someone who understood the beauty and loftiness of Scripture. Superficial preaching betrays a weak view of Scripture. Um, superficial understanding of its great, great treasures. So it's good to be here, and it's good to be with those I love and uh, by whom I'm loved here at Grace Church. Now, having said that about the profound things of Scripture, and there are many, one other footnote I need to say to add to that. I just read a book yesterday uh, written by Leland Riken. I would commend it to you. It's, uh, it's a book on English translation work. It discusses philosophy of translation, philosophy of translation. For example, why the King James, New King James, NAS, and ESV are word-for-word formal equivalency translations as opposed to all the other translations which are called dynamic equivalencies. Um, and that's a book worth reading if it's in the bookstore. The, the author sent me a copy to read, but it's worth reading to understand that there are people even in the translation of the Bible who have a low view of the Bible. They feel that, that the prevailing the prevailing power that reigns over the Scripture is the contemporary reader rather than the author. So the idea of the translation is not to give us what the author intended, but to give us what the reader would want. 
So you have translations like the Message, the, the Living Bible, the New Living Translation, the NIV, the TNIV, uh, the Message, Good News for Modern Man, etc., 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 etc. All of them make the reader sovereign and, and they want to put the Bible into the modern context, into modern language, no matter what the author intended. Uh, they're, they're the popular translations, I would venture to say. Uh, they, they dominate the evangelical world out there, and they betray the same lack of understanding that when you go to the Bible, you want to make sure you're reading what the author intended, what the Holy Spirit inspired, not reading something that is some contemporary committee spin on what they think readers would want to read. So it's a very, very important issue that comes all the way down to that. I mean, we're just very thankful. I'm very thankful for influences in my life through the years and influences in the ministries that we've had together here at Grace Church that have led us to the conviction that we want to know what God meant by what He said and we want to know what He said originally the way He said it. We want Him to be sovereign over His Word, not the modern reader. So we use a translation that is a literal translation. I preach out of the NAS. The New King James would be a literal translation. The uh, ESV, English Standard Version, a new, um, perhaps a more poetic, more beautifully structured translation is also a um, formal equivalence. They call it word-for-word-for-word word translation rather than some form of a paraphrase. That's why we use the ones that we use, and that's why I use the NAS and the New King James, which is another excellent formal equivalency text. So we turn to the Word of God, and uh, we can find all the things we need to know there. And we don't need a Bible that's in the contemporary mood. We don't need a Bible that's been updated for us. We can go back to the original and get everything that we need. And one of the things that we need to understand is the importance of worship and we, in looking at the importance of worship, want to understand how Sunday fits into that, how the Lord's Day fits into that. And I gave a message on the Sabbath because there are people who are confused about the Sabbath. And tonight I want to talk to you a little bit about the Lord's Day. It's not going to be a long message or a long service for that matter, but I do want to let you know what the Scripture has to say because I think it's so important. Now, this is Sunday, right? And you're here. And we're always here on Sunday, and there's a reason for that. It didn't happen by accident. Uh, is a pattern. Um, it's not only a pattern here at Grace Community Church. It's pretty much a pattern in churches everywhere in the United States. It's been the time-honored traditional pattern, and it goes back and back and back and back and back and all the way back to the New Testament time. The people of God, the believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, have worshipped on Sunday. I, um, I have been a lot of places in the globe in, uh, in my lifetime. Um, I have... Uh, been as far away as Kazakhstan in uh, Central Asia, and uh, the believers there worship on Sunday. They always have worshipped on Sunday, and uh, they continue today to worship on Sunday. I've been many times to the UK, to England, Ireland, uh, Scotland, and the believers there worship on Sunday. I've been to Belarus, um, a, a remarkable, remarkable uh, country that has recently kind of come into prominence for its anti-Christian and even persecuting mentality being displayed by the leaders there and being hard on the church. The believers there meet on Sunday. And uh, other countries in the former Soviet Union, Russia, the Ukraine, believers meet on Sunday. They meet on Sunday in India. They meet on Sunday in China. They meet on Sunday in the Philippines. They meet on Sunday in New Zealand, Australia. And they meet on Sunday in the mountains of Ecuador among the, um, the Indians in the village of Kolta where Trisha and I 
visited. They meet on Sunday in Brazil in the jungles and in the cities. They, they meet on Sunday all throughout South America. They meet on Sunday even in Israel. How did this happen? Why don't they all meet on different days? Why don't some of them meet on Thursday and some of them on Tuesday and some on Wednesday and others on Saturday? It's always been this way. And it's always been this way across the length and breadth of the whole of the Christian church historically. And I remember this was a bit of a burden to me in my childhood because there were people who put all kinds of strictures on Sunday. Everybody met on Sunday. And when I was a little kid, they dressed me up in this little suit and put a little white shirt on me and clipped a little bow tie and made me stay that way the whole day, all of Sunday. And I remember there, there were very strong restrictions put upon what I could do. I couldn't go out of the house. I couldn't play catch in the yard. I couldn't uh, play ball. When we lived in Philadelphia, I couldn't play step ball, which was the big thing to do on the steps of the row houses there. Um, we just had to sit there. The one sin we could commit, and we could commit that like crazy, was gluttony. Uh, it was one, was lo one long meal. Uh, we got out of church at about 12.30, and we went home at 8 until we went back at night. Um, but it was supposed to be a day when uh, everything sort of came to a grinding halt, and and uh, we set it aside for contemplation of the Lord, reading of Scripture, um, reading of Bible stories, reading of Christian books or theology, talking about the things of the Lord, and most importantly, bracketing the day in the morning and the evening with the worship at the church and throw in Sunday school and maybe youth group before Sunday night and it filled up the day. It was pretty much the way it was across the nation, across the United States of America. Um, I remember when I came to Grace Community Church in 1969, uh, there was only one mall in the San Fernando Valley, and it was the first mall that was built here. It was the Panorama City Mall. Panorama City, this little city that we occupy a portion of, was a post-war city where small little houses were built to accommodate veterans coming out of World War II. And uh, they built the first mall here, and it was never open on Sunday. Never open on Sunday. Neither was anything else open on Sunday. Stores were all closed. There were no organized events on Sunday. There were no sports for kids on Sunday. There were no planned activities in the community on Sunday. There actually were laws against that, laws passed by states and by governments. Sunday was always very different from Saturday. Stores were open on Saturday. People were in motion on Saturday. All the events, all the sporting um, occasions were scheduled on Saturday, trips, recreation, work around the house. Sunday was a very, very different day, and it was recognized that way here. It was recognized that way by our forefathers in the U.K. and in Europe, going all the way back to the time of the Reformation and even back behind that. I remember the year the local laws here in the San Fernando Valley were changed to allow stores to open on Sunday. And then eventually... Sunday became like Saturday with very little difference. But for literally centuries, Sunday worship and fellowship among Christians worldwide was the habit of the church. And you could ask the question, is this simply arbitrary? Did it just kind of happen that way? It would be pretty hard to sell somebody on that idea. Since you have all these different countries, all these different languages, and all these different centuries, and it's an unbroken pattern, how did it get started? Who started it? And why are we still conducting services on Sunday? And why do we still have a, a kind of a deference to Sunday in a five-day work week that ends on Friday? Did this just uh, happen by uh, accident? Well, many churches have begun to whittle away at Sunday. This in the last 
25 years or so. They have uh, reduced Sunday to a one-hour non-intrusive experience you can have on your way to the beach in your bathing suit if you want. Uh, they, have, uh, they have minimized Sunday down to this one hour that you can get out of the way, and uh, in order to accommodate people who don't even want to dent Sunday with that, they accommodate that with a Saturday night service. You can go to the Saturday night service, and you don't have to pay any attention to Sunday whatsoever. So you can have the whole day at the beach, and you can do the Saturday night service at night when it's dark and you can't go outside and play anyway. This is typical of the contemporary trend. And people seem to make very little difference between whether people gather on a Saturday or a Sunday. It doesn't seem to be an issue. There are lots of folks who would like to leave Sunday completely free for games, recreation, and going to the mall or wherever else they want to go. And uh, throwing in a Saturday night service that just takes a little while seems to accommodate them readily. Well, does it really matter? Is it important for us to do this on Sunday? Couldn't we just as well do it any other day or every other day? Now, let's kind of pick up where we left up up last time in answering that question. Go to Colossians 2 for a minute. We're just going to follow through some Scriptures, and I'll kind of let you draw the conclusion. Colossians 2.16, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Remember what I told you last time about the Sabbath day. It is gone right? It is gone. So whatever we're talking about on Sunday, we're not talking about the Sabbath. The Sabbath was the seventh day of the week. It was, um, it was instituted under the Mosaic law. Between the fall of man and Moses, there were no Sabbath laws. There was no Sabbath observance. That came in the Mosaic law. Centuries went by. None of the patriarchs had any kind of Sabbath laws. On the seventh day after creation, you remember God rested and God blessed that day. Why? As a, as a day that would always be a memorial to the fact that God had created the universe in six days. So the seventh day was always going to be a reminder of God as our Creator. And we worked through that in our last session. Every Saturday that comes along, which is the seventh day of the week, Sunday being the first day of the week, every Saturday that comes along is a good day for us to remember, first of all, God as Creator. And we have that in our heritage. That's why people didn't work on the weekend, because uh, Saturday could be a day when you could enjoy the creation, when you could have recreation. You didn't have to go to work. You, this was all a Christian kind of structure. You could go out and take your family and have a picnic or play a ball game or enjoy the outside, enjoy the creation of God. That was part and parcel of remembering God as Creator. We also suggested to you that when the Mosaic Law came along, uh, God ordained a Sabbath day for the people to observe and to obey God, and God put some restraints on them to remind them of their sinfulness. So every Saturday that comes along kind of has a twofold role. It causes us to remember God as Creator and to remember how sinful we really are, and truly we are sinful. But the Sabbath is gone. Colossians 2, 16 and 17, don't let anybody hold you to a Sabbath day. It's gone. It, it is part of Judaism that has been replaced by the New Covenant. And the New Covenant has a completely different day. 
Saturday, as I said, reminds us of God as Creator and God as Lawgiver, and it reminds us of the beauty of God's creation, the magnificence of His creation, and the sinfulness of our own hearts. But when you come to the New Covenant, you have a new kind of observation, not observing God as Creator, not observing God as Lawgiver, but under the New Covenant, God is defining Himself as what? Savior. So the New Covenant has its own day, a day in which we focus on God as our Savior. Now let's see how this kind of all happened. Go, uh, go to the end of the Gospel of Matthew. End of the Gospel of Matthew. Suffice it to say the argument from history is that the church has taken this seriously, that the church has made an issue out of Sunday since the New Testament times. Here we are 2,000 years later and the church is still meeting on Sunday. I would say it's pretty deeply embedded. But in Matthew 28, it's the day after the Sabbath. That would be Sunday, Sabbath on Saturday, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. His appearance was like lightning, his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him, became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He's not here, for he has risen. Just as he said, Come see the place where he was lying. Go quickly, tell his disciples he has risen from the dead, and behold, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. Then they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, Don't be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. It is dawn on Sunday morning. Familiar scene, right? This is the Sunday when Jesus arose and appeared to Mary Magdalene, to Mary, the mother of James. This is resurrection day. Verse 7, Go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead. Tell them quickly because there's a lot that's going to happen in this day. This is right at daybreak, you remember. Before this event, Sunday had no place in a Jewish calendar. No important place. None. It was not identified as a special day in any sense, religiously or socially. It was like every other day. But once the Lord rose from the dead on the first day of the week, the first day of the week would never be the same again. Because if you memorialize the creation on the seventh day, and if you memorialize, as it were, the law on the seventh day, you certainly want to memorialize the resurrection, don't you? If you celebrate God as Creator and God as Lawgiver, you certainly want to celebrate Him regularly and even more joyfully as Savior. By the way, you have the first Sunday worship service in verse 9. They came up and took hold of His feet and worshipped Him. Small service, but a service of worship. Turn in your Bible to Luke 23, and we're just kind of constructing the scene, and I'm not going to go into all the detail. We covered it as we closed out the book of Luke, all the 
things that are happening. But the, the key thing to think of in that verse, uh, verse 7, is quickly get the message out because this day is going to be packed full. We've got to get this day going early. Luke uh, 23, 55, the women who had come with Him out of, out of Galilee followed, saw the tomb, how His body was laid, returned, prepared spices, perfumes. On the Sabbath day they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, Luke 24, 1, at early dawn they came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And they entered. They didn't find the body of Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing, and as the women were terrified, bowed their faces to the ground. The men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He's not here. He has risen. Remember how He spoke to you while He was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered His words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. There were Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, other women with them telling these things to the apostles. These words appeared to them as nonsense. They wouldn't believe them. Peter got up, ran to the tomb, stooping, looking in, saw the linen wrappings only, went away to his home marveling what had happened. You remember Peter and John went to the tomb, as the other gospel writers tell us, and they realized the resurrection had taken place. Again, it is dawn on Sunday. The women are first. They go back. They report. And more come, and the apostles come. And it becomes apparent very, very early in the morning that the Lord is risen and He is alive, which means that He has accomplished redemption on the cross. He has been raised for our justification. He has conquered sin and death and hell. He has borne our sins in His own body on the cross, been made sin for us, and He has risen from the dead in triumph. And it's still early. Again, the same day, verse 13, two of them are going that very day. It's still first day, still a Sunday, to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking to each other about all these things that had taken place. And while uh, these two disciples were talking and discussing, Jesus Himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing Him, and He said to them, what are these words you're exchanging with one another as you're walking? And they stood still Looking sad, one of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here these days? How can you not know what's going on? And he said, What things? And they said to him, The things about Jesus the Nazarene who was a prophet mighty in word, deed and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. And we were hoping that it was he who was going to be the, uh, the Redeemer of Israel. Besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. And that mattered, of course, remember, because he said he would rise on the third day, and they didn't have that information yet. Well, at least they didn't believe it yet. Some women amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and didn't find His body. They came saying that they had a vision of angels who said He was alive. Uh, they hadn't really owned that. They hadn't believed that. He said, O foolish men and slow of heart, verse 25, to believe in all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for Christ to suffer these things, enter into His glory, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He explained to them things concerning Himself and all the Scriptures. They approached the village where they were going, and He acted as though He was going to go further. They urged Him, saying, Stay with us. It's getting toward evening. The day is now nearly over. So He went in to stay with them. When He had reclined at table with them, He took the bread and blessed it. Breaking it, He began giving it to them. Their eyes were opened. They recognized Him, and He vanished from their sight. Quite a day. 
Quite a day. In the morning He appears to the apostles and the women. In the afternoon He appears to these two on the road to Emmaus, two disciples unnamed except for Cleopas, the other one unnamed. But there's more yet. There's more yet. According to verse um, 32, they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while He was speaking to us on the road, while He was explaining the Scripture to us? And they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them, saying, The Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. And they began to relate their experience on the road and how He was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. Well, this is some Sunday. And by the way, you had the first Sunday worship and you also had the first Sunday sermon. It's in verses 25 to 27. O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for Christ to suffer these things, enter into His glory? And He began with Moses and all the prophets expounding to them the things concerning Himself in all the Scriptures. The first sermon was an expository sermon on the first Sunday. Well, the first worship service, the first Sunday... And it's not over. It's not over. They, having come to realize Jesus was alive, run back to Jerusalem, the seven miles, and they found the eleven and those who were gathered with them and told them the Lord had really risen. Then it got really interesting. Verse 36, while they were telling these things, He Himself stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. They were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet that I desire myself. Touch me and see. Spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see that I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they couldn't believe it because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, took it and ate it with them. And now they know. They know that all the things written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms are being fulfilled. John's chronicle is also quite interesting. Turn to John chapter 20. And again, we're not trying to cover details, but just give you the big picture. John chapter 20, verse 1, the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb, still dark, uh, just before dawn, saw the stone already taken away from the tomb, ran and came and told Simon Peter and the other disciples. They go through the same wonderful story. This is the account of Simon and Peter who arrive. They find the face cloth and the linen wrappings. Um, this is the occasion when Mary Magdalene is confronted by Jesus and says in verse 18, I have seen the Lord. Now we pick up the story in chapter 20, verse 19, that we left off in Luke 24. When it was evening on that day, the two from Emmaus have come back to the upper room where the eleven are. It's the first day of the week. Note that, would you? Verse 19, when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week. No wonder Jesus said, go quickly and tell everybody, because by all the running back and forth time is elapsing, it's important that all these occasions of the visible Christ manifesting Himself be able to happen on that first day. So it is the first day of the week and the doors were shut. You remember that Luke said they were afraid and startled when he arrived? Well, of course, because the door was shut. He came through the wall. He came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And he said, Peace be with, them, with you because they were no doubt in a state of panic when he appeared. Panic because they thought he was dead and panic because the door was locked. He showed them his hands 
and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, I also send you. It gives them a reiteration of the commission. And then he breathes on them and says to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. And this is a preview, promise of the reception of the Holy Spirit. What a day! What a day! By, uh, by Friday night when Jesus is dead, uh, their hopes are smashed and crushed and dashed. The best that they can imagine is that uh, they can rest on the Sabbath because they can't do any work or take any kind of trip. So even the women who are going to anoint His body have to wait till the Sabbath's over and they'll go and do what will be a nice thing to do, anoint the corpse of Jesus. That was the best they could have hoped for was some act of kindness to the dead body of the one they had put their trust in. By the time that Sunday is over, they all know Jesus is alive from the dead. Peter knows it. John knows it. Mary Magdalene knows it. The other Marys, the other women know it. Other disciples know it. And by Sunday evening, all the disciples know it with one exception. Who was absent? Thomas. Thomas was absent. Pick it up in John 20, 21. Jesus said to them, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me. I send you, breathed on them, said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 24, But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. Such a doubter probably was off in a corner saying, I was right. I had every reason to doubt. So the other disciples were saying to him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hand the imprint of the nails, put my finger in the place of the nails, put my hand into his side, I won't believe. This is fabulous. Verse 26. After eight days, his disciples were again inside. What day would that be? Sunday. Nothing happened in the, in the seven days in between. It is not until that eighth day that the disciples again are gathered together. Oh, were they gathered together on the other days? You better believe they were. I mean, they were, they were hiding. Jesus came, the doors having been shut again, stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. He said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands. Reach here with your hand and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Many other signs than the ones written here, John says, could be written about the work of Christ. But the point that I want you to notice is Sunday all of a sudden became a very, very special day. Jesus makes two miraculous post-resurrection appearances to the disciples, both of them on a Sunday, both of them on a Sunday. It is on a Sunday that they know He is alive from the dead. It is on a Sunday that they know the Old Testament is being fulfilled. It is on a Sunday that they know the Father has affirmed His redemptive work on the cross. It is on a Sunday that He pledges to them that they will receive the Holy Spirit to be empowered for ministry in the future. It is on a Sunday that all the past of His ministry and His death comes to make sense. And what a Sunday. Jesus rose from the dead on that Sunday appeared on that Sunday in the morning, appeared on that Sunday in the afternoon, appeared on that Sunday in the evening, showed Himself alive to the women on that Sunday. They had the first worship service on that Sunday. Jesus preached the first sermon on that Sunday. Met two disciples 
uh, on that Sunday, broke bread with them and disclosed Himself to them and then miraculously vanished. He met that night with the eleven minus Thomas on that Sunday and twice pronounced peace on them and ate with them. He must have taught several times on that Sunday, not only on the road to Emmaus, but no doubt in the upper room again as He told them that He had indeed come to fulfill all the Old Testament promises. On that Sunday, He told His disciples that forgiveness of sins was now available through what He had accomplished, and it was available to all who would repent and believe. On that Sunday, He stated the great commission that they were to go out and proclaim the gospel. He launched, as it were, the un, uh, unlimited worldwide mission of evangelism by commissioning His disciples and apostles to take the gospel and proclaim it to the ends of the world. And on that Sunday, as I said, He pledged to them that they would have the power of the Holy Spirit. The great new covenant had been ratified. Forgiveness of sins for all sinners of all ages who came to God was accomplished. What a day. What a day. And it was a Sunday, and prior to that, Sunday had absolutely no significance. None. But from that day on, Sunday took on a completely different meaning. Sundays would never be the same again. Sunday became New Covenant Resurrection Day in their minds because God had chosen that day. If the seventh day was designed by God for delighting in Him as Creator and then having been corrupted by the fall, if the seventh day was also designed by God to put fear in the heart because of the violation of His holy law. Here was another day. This was not a day to celebrate creation or to celebrate sin or the sinfulness of sin. This was a day to celebrate salvation. The resurrection was the dawning of a new day, and so the new covenant has a new day. The Sabbath is gone, and the new day has come. And it is the day of celebration of the work of Christ. Now, it doesn't end there. Why eight days later? The Lord was saying something about Sundays, instituting a new covenant day of commemoration. Turn to Acts 2, and let me reinforce that a little bit. Acts 2. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And uh, suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a rushing uh, violent wind and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, not actual fire, but kind of looked like fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other languages as the Spirit was giving them utterance. This is the coming of the Holy Spirit. As Jesus had promised when it says He breathed on them in John 20, that was a promise, that was a pledge that was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. Here is a monumental fulfillment of prophecy. By the way, go back to chapter 1, verse 8. You will receive power, Acts 1-8, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. He's coming. And it was not long after Jesus made that promise that the Spirit did come. And the Spirit came, as we all know, 
to empower believers to fulfill the commission of proclaiming the glorious gospel, as well as to affirm their faith, to seal their faith, to give them assurance and confidence, to give them internal testimony to the validity of the gospel. Jesus had made this promise repeatedly. John 14, 16, I will ask the Father, He will give you another helper that He may be with you forever, the Spirit of truth whom the world can't receive because it doesn't know Him or, uh, or see Him, but you know Him because He abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Literally, I will come to you in the Holy Spirit who is the Spirit of Christ. Jesus makes this promise, John 14, John 15, John 16, again and again and again. The Spirit's going to come. He's going to take up residence in you. He is literally going to baptize you into my body, making one the church. He is going to give you gifts, spiritual gifts and enablements. He's going to give you power for evangelism. And the Spirit did come as promised. And fascinating, isn't it, that it happens on the day of Pentecost. This is when the church was born. This is when the disciples were empowered. This is the first baptizing work of Christ as He baptizes believers by means of the Spirit into His body. This is the day when the kingdom comes to life. This is a glorious, marvelous day. And you remember that in chapter 2, verse 14, Peter stands up, gives this great sermon uh, concerning the significance of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says in verse 23, This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men, put him to death, but God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. And then he goes on to preach from Psalm 16, an exposition of the promised resurrection of the Messiah. And it has a phenomenal impact. When they heard it, verse 37, they're pierced to the heart. He says, repent, be baptized for the forgiveness of sin, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Three thousand people are converted. And why am I bringing this into the discussion? Did you ever wonder what day of the week it was on Pentecost? Do you know what day of the week it was? It just happened to be Sunday. It just happened to be Sunday. According to Leviticus 23.16, the Feast of Weeks, Pentecost, was designated to dedicate the first fruits of the harvest of wheat. That would be May-June. It is called Pentecost, Penta meaning five, because it occurred 50 days after the Sabbath preceding the Feast of First Fruits. So you have a Sabbath plus 50 days. Simple calculation. A Sabbath plus seven Sabbaths, 49 would fall on a Sabbath, right? So 50 would be the first day of the next week. It's Sunday again. Pentecost happens on a Sunday. As unique as this is, all these references are short of commanding us to observe the first day of the week as if it... Uh, it had some special sort of mosaic significance. We don't have any New Testament commands regarding the first day of the week. We just have the very obvious fact that God filled that day 
with the most significant events in the founding of the church, namely the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the arrival of the Spirit of God. The events of the resurrection and the birth of the church and the empowerment of the church, the completion of salvation, the coming of the Holy Spirit, these glorious foundational realities that are at the very heart of our redemption, these are the, the realities that replace the shadows and the forms of the Sabbath. They happen on a Sunday. And the Lord then has picked out His own day. And just as I told you this morning, when He appointed twelve apostles, He left the leaders of Israel behind. When our Lord established the first day, He left the seventh day behind. The Mosaic law for the seventh day has passed away. It is the worst thing possible for people who call themselves Christians to take restrictions intended for the Mosaic Sabbath and try to impose them on Sunday. That's opposite the intention of our Lord. Don't let anybody hold you to a Sabbath day. You're not under the Mosaic law anymore. You're not under the constraints and ceremonies and restrictions and restraints of the Mosaic law. We have a new day. We left Judaism behind. We left the Sabbath behind. We left the leaders of Israel behind. We have a new covenant. We have new ministers of that new covenant, and we have a new day. It's not like the Mosaic Sabbath. Not at all. Oh, you can still, I think, think of the seventh day Saturday in a sense as the day that reminds us that the Lord created everything in six days. I think that's a wonderful thing to do. You can still be reminded that uh, it, was, um, it was the law of God that came down on people's heads with regard to the Sabbath, and it's good to remember that you're a sinner. But there's nothing in the New Testament that takes old covenant restrictions and restraints from the Mosaic Sabbath and imposes them on the first day of the week. Keep in mind, please, that from Genesis 2 where God rested until giving of the Mosaic Law hundreds, centuries, centuries later, through all that period of time, there were no restraints on anyone's behavior on Saturday. It was just the day that you remembered God as Creator, even though men were sinful. There were no restrictions and no restraints. That didn't even come till Moses. It started with Moses and it ended with the abolishing of the Old Covenant and the establishing and the ratifying of the New Covenant. New Covenant Sunday then is um, kind of like old, old um, Sabbath from Genesis. You remember God blessed the Sabbath day made it a day of blessing to remember your Creator. Well, He's blessed the first day and made it a day to remember your Redeemer. When God instituted the day of rest, originally it was a day of rest. Under Moses, it was a day of anything but rest. But the Lord's Day for us is to be a day of delight. It's to be a day of blessing. It's, it's to be a day not fraught with external regulation. I guess in a sense, in Christ, the rest originally identified in Eden is recovered. What is the point of the first day? The soul is to be refreshed. The soul is to be refreshed with joy, peace, with spiritual delight. The soul is to be refreshed with divine truth. The soul is to be refreshed in worship. 
the teaching, the preaching of the Word of God. This is a sweet gift from God. And we ought to be very thankful that we live in a country that still has vestiges of commitment to Sunday. Fast passing away, aren't they? But, but it was always intended to be a day of rest. It's not a day to be infused with restrictions and restraints borrowed from the Mosaic Law. That's, um, that's always the issue with covenant theology. They, they don't know where things end and where new things begin. In Galatians 4.9, Now that you have come to know God, to be known by God, how is that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You don't want to go back to that. You observe days and months and seasons and years. Don't do that. I fear, Paul says, for you, perhaps I've labored over you for nothing. I mean, have I wasted my time setting you free in Christ? Are you going to go back to observing days, Sabbath days, months, seasons, years? We're not under any Sabbath law at all. Well, the Sunday of resurrection was a very special Sunday. The following Sunday was a very special Sunday. Pentecost was a very special Sunday. Certainly after Pentecost, Sunday was very well established in the hearts of the people of God. Did they worship only on Sunday? No, no. They worshiped how often? Every day. Acts 2.46, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, taking their meals together with gladness, sincerity of heart, praising God, having favor with all the people. You know, they, they were experiencing that every single day, and that is what Sunday should be. It should be a day of coming together. It should be a day of uh, devoting yourselves to the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, prayer. It should be a day of taking meals together with gladness, sincerity of heart, praising God. It should be a happy, joyous day. It's not a day of restraint. It's not a day when we come under the fearful threat of the law. It's a day when we celebrate our redemption. And so they met every day, but it didn't take long before they landed on a special day. Turn to Acts 20. Acts 20. This is just a little bit more of the history. Luke writes that um, along with Paul, we sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, came to uh, believers at Troas within five days, stayed there seven days. Now look at this, verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, isn't that interesting? No law has been given to establish this. But here we are, well into the ministry of the Apostle Paul, years have passed, since the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's not remarkable. It's matter-of-fact. When we were gathered together to break bread on the first day of the week. That's what they did. They're still meeting. And by the way, they had an evening service. I think they probably met all day. How do you know it's an evening service? Because he preached till midnight. Preached till midnight. And there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered together. And there was a young man named Eutychus 
sitting on the window. His name means good luck. Eutychus is sitting on the window. Still, not a good place if you're going to fall asleep. Sinks into a deep sleep, and as Paul kept on talking, look, even the greatest of preachers put people to sleep. <laughs> the man is overcome by sleep, falls out of the third floor, and was picked up dead. Now, that is an evening service that went on and on and on and on. This poor guy couldn't take it any longer. Paul went down, fell upon him, embracing him, said, Don't be troubled, for life is in him. Raised him from the dead. And you know what? Went back up, broke bread, ate, and kept talking until daybreak. I like that. The man knew no ending to what he wanted to say. If somebody fell out of the window and died, you raise him and bring him back. I'm not through, and you're not through listening. And they took the boy alive, and they were greatly comforted. So what are they doing? They're meeting on a Sunday, and the meeting goes on and on and on because they're praising God, and they're loving what they're hearing, and it's the apostles' doctrine. This is not a drop-in, one-hour deal on the way to the beach, folks. This is people hungry for the things of God. This church at Troas is exemplary of the pattern of Sunday worship in the early church and ever since. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Paul writes uh, to the uh, Corinthians, he's writing about the offering, the collection. Concerning the collection for the saints, Paul was trying to collect some money for the poor saints in Jerusalem. And some of the Gentile churches had money that they could send to provide some relief for the poor saints in Jerusalem. What happened was uh, there were pilgrims in uh, Jerusalem when Pentecost happened, and many of them were converted. Well, they didn't want to go back to their town. What would you go back to? There was a Jewish synagogue there, and there were pagan temples, but there weren't any churches there. There was only one church in Jerusalem, so they stayed. So how would they live? There were believers in Jerusalem who, when they embraced Christ, were kicked out of their houses. Somebody had to take them in. So providing some relief to care for these people was challenging. You remember some people sold land and took the money and gave it to the apostles to be distributed to care for these people, as we learn in the early chapters of Acts. So Paul has this notion of collecting money for the saints in Jerusalem uh, in the same way as he directed the churches in the region of Galatia to do it. He wanted the Corinthians to do it as well. So here's what he told them. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper that no collections be made when I come. I just want you to make it a matter, of course, in your Sunday worship. Offerings were taken on the first day of the week. It's not a day when we're more holy than others. It's not a day when there are some restraints on how we are to behave. It's a day when we celebrate our salvation. It's a day when we glorify God, when we focus on what Christ has done for us. That's why we come together and pray. That's why we come together and sing hymns. That's why we come together and read Scripture. That's why you hang around in the patio and talk about the things of Christ and fellowship with each other and share what you're learning. It's a day when you look at the most important reality in your life, and that is your salvation. Well, eventually, this 
first day became so precious to the church that it got its own name. Turn to Revelation chapter 1. Got its own name. Revelation chapter 1. Uh, John, verse 9, is on the Isle of Patmos because uh, of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus because he's been exiled there by the enemies of the gospel. And he says in verse 10, I was in the Spirit on what? The Lord's day. On the Lord's day. Some people think this means the day of the Lord, the eschatological day of judgment. Hardly. Hardly. John did not experience the the final day of the Lord judgment on the island of Patmos. Besides, the day of the Lord, Tehemera to Kuriu, is a distinct phrase. The Lord's day is Te Kuriake Hehemera, a completely different phrase used only here. This is not the eschatological day of the Lord. This is a non-eschatological statement. This is the Lord's day, and he doesn't even give an explanation. Now, what, when is John writing? Well, he's writing 30, 40 years after Paul. He's writing in 96 A.D. at the end of the first century. And by that time, this was no longer called Sunday or whatever other forms that day had been called. It was, for believers now, the Lord's day. It doesn't even need a further explanation. There are all kinds of testimonies in the second century, which would have been just a few years later since John's writing in 96, all kinds of testimonies to the fact that in the second century this was the customary way to refer to the first day of the week. The first day of the week was the Lord's day. The day that we honor the Lord. This title for Sunday is commonly found in many, many early Christian writings, has continued through all church history, even down to the present. I don't call Sunday Sunday. I call it the Lord's Day. You, you hear me say that a lot. The Lord's Day. The Lord's Day. It was on the Lord's Day that John received his, received his vision. His first vision was of Jesus, the Lord of the church, Right? What does he say there? I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice. The sound of a trumpet turns around, and he sees Christ ministering in the candlesticks, Christ ministering in his church. This is the Lord of the church serving his church, and he got the vision of the Lord moving in his church on Sunday. The Lord is the one who initiated that vision, and he initiated it on a Sunday, on the Lord's day. John had a lot of visions in the book of Revelation. None of them is identified with a day. None of them. This is the only one. This is the Lord's Day because this is Resurrection Day. This is Holy Spirit Day. It's not the Lord's morning. It's not the Lord's afternoon. It's not the Lord's evening. It's not the Lord's hour. It's the Lord's Day. What does that mean to you? There's a reason why we don't have a Saturday night service. Would it be wrong? No. Not law. Not necessarily wrong. I don't want to be the guy that breaks the tradition. 
I don't want to be the guy who breaks this marvelous, glorious tribute to the risen Christ. Christ should be exalted 24-7, right? And He should be exalted Saturday morning and Saturday night and every other day. But it just seems to me that God has placed His almighty hand on the first day of the week and said, this is my day. This is my day. Sunday night services are disappearing all over the place. If they exist at all much anymore, you'd be hard-pressed to find one. Um, But as I said, it's not the Lord's morning. It's the Lord's day. And we want to make sure that we do not, according to Hebrews 10.25, forsake our assembling together but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. As we get closer to the return of Jesus Christ, we ought to ramp up our fellowship, not diminish it, right? We're going the wrong direction, folks. Services are shorter, more superficial, and fewer at a time when they ought to be deeper, longer, and more frequent. But again, we're back to what I said earlier. Superficial preaching betrays the profound realities of Scripture. Church is full of superficial people and a superficial understanding of the high priority of worship. So as long as I have life and breath, there will be a Sunday morning set of services and there will be a Sunday night service. And we've accommodated you on the Sunday night service by not having a second floor so you don't need to worry about falling out and dying. (laughs) The worst that could happen to you is you would hit your head on the pew on the way down and we can deal with that. What does the Lord expect of us on His day? All I can say is that what He would expect of us would be obvious, wouldn't it? That we would celebrate Him as Savior. That we would rejoice in His cross. That we would rejoice in His resurrection. That we would pray together, fellowship together, break bread together around His table. And that we would listen to the Apostles' doctrine and hear the preaching of the Word and embrace its glorious truth. I'm not talking about legalism. We're not talking about some kind of old covenant Sabbath laws imposed upon us. But grace certainly doesn't require less than law, does it? I guess the question is, how much do you love Christ? How strong is your desire for worship? We're not going to drop any external rules on you. Everything about the new covenant is better than the old covenant, everything including the day, including the day, because this day is not burdensome. It is joyous. And I know you feel that way because when Clayton gets up here on Sunday morning and packs this place with all the musicians, you you sing with all your might out of the joy of your heart. I never want to see people come to a service as a stop-off point on the way to whatever else they need to do. That doesn't mean you can't do some work in the afternoon. It doesn't mean you can't enjoy some recreation, some fellowship, and do some other things. It just means that there's a day that God Himself has ordained for you to focus primarily on the glory of your salvation. Take every opportunity you can to fill it with worship and praise and fellowship and divine truth. We're not, we're not under the, the old covenant regulations. We're not under a system of condemnation. We don't need shadows. We have the reality, the true rest in Christ.
Christ. And this is a day to rest. Not to rest in the sense of celebrating creation, but to rest in the sense of celebrating new creation, salvation. So, rather than ask, what shouldn't I do on Sunday? Ask, what should I do? What does my love for Christ ask me to do? What what does my heart for Him ask me to do? I'm not forbidden to work. I'm not forbidden to play. But the high ground is to say, this is a day of all days in which I will find my greatest delight. And what is my greatest delight? My greatest delight is to worship and fellowship with God's people. And you can't do that if you just bring your body here without your heart. Search your heart. Is this really the Lord's day for you? I hope so. Father, thank You again for Your Word. The refreshment of it, the beauty of it, the simplicity of it, the richness of it, the consistency of it really overwhelms us. And even though we study it week after week, year after year, it comes to us with a kind of freshness that brings joy to our hearts. This is Your day. We want to fill it with all the things that focus on You, delighting in You, loving You, loving Your people, loving Your truth, setting our hearts aside from the things of the world, setting our affections on things above. To be determined, of course, not by what we don't do, but what we do. To be determined not by what we're not allowed to do, but by what our hearts long to do. I look over this audience tonight. These people are here tonight because this is where they want to be. Of all the places they could be, this is where they want to be. Because they love you. They want to honor you. This is your day. May all of our lives be filled with a special, special understanding of how wonderful is the weekly reminder of our eternal salvation built in to the Lord's day. Give us a love for it because there's a love for you built into it. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. You've been listening to John MacArthur, Bible teacher with Grace to You. For free access to all of John's lessons and a listing of study Bibles and books available for sale, visit Grace to You's website, gty.org. And for details about the Masters University where John serves as president, go to masters.edu. John MacArthur and Grace to You reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available at gty.org and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating this digital file. Shelter in.
around us be shelter in the time of storm. We'll never leave our safe retreat. Shelter in the Just 
was once again shackles crazy like a fish and now I'm gonna read from Red Comforts. This is an old blog on on the box dot US website on the box dot US and then someone wrote in what happens to those who never get a chance to hear the gospel and die before they get do get a chance. And then Ray writes no one will ever go to hell because they haven't heard of Jesus. They will be condemned for murder, rape, adultery, fornication, lying, stealing, etc. Put your concern for others to hear the gospel aside for the moment. If you died right now, you will justly end up in hell. Get right with God and become a missionary if you really care about the loss. And... Here and there one from the new uh, blog set uh, posting at Atheist Central, and it's on Facebook.com slash Atheist Central with Ray Comfort. And it says, someone wrote, if God doesn't exist, how do you explain incurable genetic diseases, cancer, and needless suffering? And Ray writes, if you reject the Genesis curse, nothing makes sense. The Bible says we have we live in a fallen world, fallen creation, filled with disease, suffering, and death. And that's from, once again, Atheist Central with Ray Comfort. And that's on Facebook. So it goes www.facebook.com slash Atheist Central with Ray Comfort for that, for more. And let's see. Now I'm going to play from Wretched. This is, says, How to Stop Failing Fights here on Truth Be Told. You and I have a tendency to see ourselves in a cloudy mirror. I do not see myself clearly. I see myself the way I imagine myself, which frankly is really amazing. The first message of the gospel crushes that. And when we fail to remember that, instead of being a humble servant, we are going to be a haughty commandant. We are going to insist, demand, and be really annoyed when those plebeians don't do what their commander-in-chief has ordered them to do. Uh, That is a key to not only bringing peace to your home, but in modeling the gospel for your kids so that it becomes more believable. However, we didn't quite get to what that looks like exactly. Here we go from chapter 2. You overhear your child use a swear word, and you forget that you too were a child who let bloopers fly. Therefore, you're disappointed and angry with your child for being a bigger sinner than you are. You see the key here? You, you forget that you were a naughty sinner too, that you needed your mouth washed out with soap. When you forget that, oh, come on, we're a Christian family. And we don't talk like that around here. That is the result of forgetting the first message of the gospel. Another example, your spouse says something downright sinful to you. 
and you've forgotten that you've committed more sins against God than your spouse could ever commit against you. Therefore, boom, off to war you go. And there is a word to describe thinking that you're not as big a sinner as other people in your home. Uh, that word would be self-righteousness, forgetting the first message of the gospel. Have you forgotten how many times you've sinned against your spouse? Have you forgotten how many times you've sinned against your children? And the reality is we have. We forget all the time because I have an amazing ability to toss my sins into the sea of my forgetfulness, but I sure can keep a record of their wrongs. Why? Because I'm forgetting the first message of the gospel, which should drive me to my knees and drive out self-righteousness. And in case there's any confusion about what self-righteousness is, from chapter 2, the self-righteous are disgusted with people. The self-righteous get angry when anyone sins against them. The self-righteous feel justified in returning an eye for an eye and a sin for a sin. The self-righteous believe they should never be inconvenienced or treated poorly. And finally, the self-righteous believe they have every right to brutalize the people who share their last name. Anybody else want to confess their self-righteousness? Consider most kings. Most kings will send their army out to battle, and if victorious, they will take over the land of the vanquished, take their stuff, and do whatever they want to do with the losers. Consider a different king, who even though he had the right to act in a divine way, he set aside those rights. He didn't get rid of his divine powers. He set them aside as the man Jesus Christ, and he humbled himself under the point of death for the servants. That is a tale of two kings. Which king do we follow? Which king are we to model? Which king do we want our children to say, that's the one to whom I want to give my allegiance? If we are going to be Christian parents who model God for our children, who show our children. You know that gospel thing that we sing about on Sunday mornings? I actually believe that. And it's affected me. And it's changed me. And it will change you when you remember the first message of the gospel, which raises a question again now that you've heard the admonition. How? How do I do that? This from a reset for parents, the first message of the gospel should put a stake through the heart of self-righteousness. If you want your home to be more peaceful, you can stop being self-righteous by doing sin math. Chances are pretty good. You saw that word and went, <laughs> no thanks, I'll pass. We are not talking about calculus. We're not talking about algebra. 
or any of the other math things that I don't even know actually exist because I never took those classes because I was a mathematical knucklehead. Uh, we do not have to take out our Texas Instruments calculator to do sin math. Instead, we open up our Bibles to a particular place and we hold it up to our faces to see ourselves in this mirror helping us understand how many times we have sinned against God and against man, which will make you humble. There isn't an option in this. When you genuinely do sin math, you consider the amount of time that you have dedicated to violating God's laws, and you start to see this mountain of sin credited to you all of a sudden, I turn and I see somebody who's committed a pebble sin, and I can't get angry because I own a mountain of it. Sin math moves you from being a conquering, self-righteous king to being a humble servant who points your children to the king of kings. Is an offer. You can't refuse. Get a copy of my brand new book, Reset for Parents, How to Keep Your Kid from Backsliding. Read it. Apply it. And if you do not see a change for the better in your home and in your relationship with your child, we'll send your money back. I'm not kidding. How all you have to lose is a bunch of yelling, screaming, and sinning. Purchase a copy at wretched.tv slash reset or get it absolutely free. Well, except for that string attached, which is joining the Wretched Club, become a monthly supporter, and we will give you my new book, Reset for Parents, absolutely free. And if you do get it for free, and if you read it, apply it, and don't see a change, we'll send your money back for the retail value of the book. I am that confident this book will change your home. That's what the book he was reading from is called Reset for Parents. And like you said, and that was from Wretched, their YouTube page, but you could also see them at wretched.tv, that's W-R-E-T-C-H-E-D dot TV, wretched.tv. And you're from me, most Cantrell, here on Truthy Total Radio. And what I'm going to do now is, let's see, I'm going to place, this is from WWUTT. Also known as what, and it's their website is www.utt.com, www.utt.com, and this is, says is Orthodox Church Christian Eastern Orthodox Russian Greek etc. Here on Tributorium. <laughs> Ten 
1054, there was a split between the Latin-speaking Church of the West and the Greek-speaking churches of the East. This split became known as the Great Schism, in which the Pope of Rome and the Patriarch of Constantinople excommunicated each other. To this day, the division remains between the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church. Like Roman Catholicism, the Eastern Orthodox claims to be the true church, tracing its origin through an unbroken line of apostolic succession. They believe Jesus is the Son of God, that God is triune, and the Bible is his word. However, there's still a Roman Catholic knockoff. The Orthodox Church denies justification by grace through faith alone, even though the Bible says there's no other way a person can be saved. Instead, the Orthodox Church says Christians receive salvation through a process of faith, works, and partaking in the sacraments. Like the Roman Catholics, the Orthodox Church believes the sacraments literally become the actual flesh and blood of Christ, a false doctrine known as transubstantiation. Though the Orthodox Church teaches the Bible is the authoritative word of God, they believe the Church is equal in authority and no one should interpret the Bible apart from Church tradition. The Orthodox Church prays for the dead and says it's possible for salvation to occur after death. But the Bible says it is appointed for a man once to die and after that comes judgment. We have this life only to turn from sin and follow Christ. It's possible for a person to attend an Orthodox Church, hear about Jesus, and become a Christian. But if they're growing in the knowledge of God and His Word, they should not remain under the false teaching of the Eastern Orthodox Church when we understand the text. Once again, that's when we understand text, what? www.utt.com at www.utt.com. For second, that's from YouTube, though. But that's their website, www.utt.com. And let's see. Now I am going to play a song from Go Fish. This is Sweet Sour Salvation here. Truth be told, you. I love to tell the story. It will be my theme and glory to tell the old, old story of Jesus and His love. Oh uh-huh. 
NOAA and technology. This is Ken Ham, and our life-size ark is open near Cincinnati and already popular. As we build our full-size Noah's Ark, many people had questions about the original ark. One question we got a lot and still get is why we use technology to build the ark. Many people believe Noah didn't have any technology. Or did he? Actually, we don't know what kind of technology Noah had because his world was completely destroyed in the global flood. But we do know that Adam's descendants were intelligent people, made in God's image, just like us. There's no reason to believe they didn't have amazing technologies. The Bible tells us that just a few generations after Adam, people were working with bronze and iron, playing instruments and building cities. Imagine what else they could have done. Want to learn more about Noah, the Flood, and our life-size ark? You'll discover so much more on our information-packed website at AnswersRadio.com. That's AnswersRadio.com. Was the ark big enough? This is Ken Ham, President of Answers in Genesis, the Creation Museum, and the Ark Encounter. Have you ever wondered how Noah fit all those animals on the ark? Well, Noah didn't need all the species we see today. He only needed two of every kind of land-dwelling, air-breathing animal. Also, kind is a much broader term than species. It's probably at about the family level of scientific classification. Research shows Noah only needed a few thousand animals. And for the bigger animals, like some dinosaurs, Noah could have just taken young animals that were smaller. At our full-size ark, people are able to see for themselves how big the ark actually was. It had more than enough room to fit the few thousand animals as well as the supplies Noah needed to bring with him on the ark. To discover more about Noah's Ark, visit our website at AnswersRadio.com. You'll also learn about the full-size ark we built to spread the gospel at AnswersRadio.com. How did Noah care for the animals? This is Ken Ham, contributor to the family-friendly apologetics magazine, Answers. With the full-size ark we built south of Cincinnati, we answer people's questions about the flood and the ark. One thing we show is how Noah could have easily cared for the few thousand animals that he needed to take with him on the ark. Today, many farms care for thousands of animals by using simple labor-saving devices. Gravity-fed troughs provide the animals with food and water for several days, cutting down feeding time. Sloped floors will direct waste toward a central ditch, making waste removal easy even for a few people. You know, these devices reduce the time spent caring for the animals. Noah and his family could have easily employed these same technologies on board the ark. Do you have more questions about Noah, the ark, and the flood? We've got solid, biblically-based answers on our website, AnswersRadio.com. Visit us at AnswersRadio.com. Did Noah do it alone? This is Ken Ham, hoping you'll visit our popular full-size Noah's Ark attraction south of Cincinnati. The full-size Ark we built was a project involving thousands of people. Now, many people ask us how Noah could have done such a big project with just his three sons. Well, Noah wasn't under the same time frame we were. He had a lot more time. And he didn't have to build it to withstand years of wear or to meet construction and fire codes. And he didn't have to fill it with high-quality exhibits. So Noah had it a bit easier. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us that he did it alone or that God told him he couldn't hire other people to help. Noah probably hired others to assist him and his sons with the project and he probably used the time as an opportunity to warn them of the coming flood. 
To discover more about Noah and the Ark, visit us at AnswersRadio.com. You can also learn about the full-size Ark that's now open in Northern Kentucky at AnswersRadio.com. Dinosaurs on the Ark? This is Ken Ham, a publisher of the award-winning family magazine called Answers. Our full-size ark near Cincinnati features dinosaurs alongside creatures you'll recognize from zoos and even your own backyard. But how did Noah pick dinosaurs on the ark? Well, the average dinosaur was only about the size of a bison. Most weren't the towering creatures we usually think of. But what about the ones that were really, really big like T-Rex or Brachiosaurus? Well, the biggest dinosaur egg uncovered was only about the size of a football. So all dinosaurs start out small. And God would have sent younger ones onto the ark. This makes sense because younger ones could reproduce longer and fill the earth after the flood. Noah wouldn't have had any trouble fitting dinosaurs on the ark. To discover more about dinosaurs, Noah, and the global flood, visit our website at AnswersRadio.com. You'll also stay up to date on what's happening at the ark at AnswersRadio.com.
song seems off so strong God is the ruler, yeah And though the wrong seems oh so strong
and next uh, do uh let's see the old rib cross here on Tributory.
told her to go out with Yancey and friends with the VRBOE. Bye for now.